Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, a look at Justin Trudeau's so-called just transition away from the oil and gas sector and the industry's response. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Welcome to the Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. It is great to have you tuned in. We've talked a lot about some of the big picture challenges facing the oil and gas sector, facing the energy industry more broadly, and how many of these are not being led by markets, but are actually being led by governments, government directives in Canada, some global initiatives like the Great Reset that are really trying to push a phase out of the energy sector, of the hydrocarbon sector, which has a huge effect specifically on Alberta, but nationally and and internationally as well. One of these initiatives has not gotten nearly the coverage it deserves. It's quite significant. It's called the Just Transition. Well, justice sounds good. There's nothing wrong with that, right? Well, the Just Transition is extracted from the Paris Climate Agreements, and it is ultimately a method for the government to try to push a transition away from the energy sector. And they talk about this in terms that make it sound like a a hunky-dory thing, but the reality is they aren't talking about the things that would actually help them do this. A lot of the initiatives and solutions that are being driven by the energy sector. So we do things differently here on the Andrew Lawton Show. I wanted to delve in this with a level of detail, and I've got a great panel together. Joining me is Danielle Smith, who's the president of the Alberta Enterprise Group, Michael Binion, who's the founder of the Modern Miracle Network, Apoorv Sinha, who's the CEO of Carbon Upcycling, and Kevin Crossard, who's the CEO and co-founder of Avatar Innovations. We've got a lot of brain power on the panel today, myself not included in that, but uh, thank you to all of you for joining. It's great to have you here. Thanks, Andrew. Now, I want to start with you, Danielle, because you are one of the few people in media in Canada who's actually given some attention to the just transition. A lot of people that I know listen to this show who would consider themselves astute followers of the news probably have not come across this. Even in the course of preparing for this show, I was not finding much out there. Tell me what this is, and more importantly, why has no one been talking about it? Because it seems pretty significant. I think it was probably by design. It was launched in the middle of summer on July the 20th. Then we launched right into a federal election campaign, and they were supposed to end the consultation September 30th, which, of course, was only a few days after the election. They wanted to have consultation by invite only and invited everybody else to put in their submissions. And Michael will tell you a little bit more about how uh, the, the various industry groups and the public responded by putting submissions in. I think that's the reason why it's been delayed. But the the just transition, we have to be careful of the wording that is used here. That's the wording that the extreme left uses as a way of talking about phasing out fossil fuels completely. And it's built on this faulty premise that I've been listening to for probably a decade, that the entire world energy system should convert to wind and solar. We shouldn't have natural gas heating. We shouldn't have combustion engine vehicles. We should simply use this intermittent power and have battery backup. And somehow that's supposed to uh, fuel a modern industrial economy. I think we've seen through movies like Planet of the Humans, if even Michael Moore realizes that that vision is absolutely unachievable, and that you, even if you look at at solar panels, which are crystalline silicon made of uh, in China, using not only Uyghur slave labor, but also using coal-fired electricity, solar panels are not going to be net zero until the fossil fuel industry is net zero. Wind farms that have cement 
and steel and fiberglass, they are not going to be net zero until all of those industries are net zero as well. And so I, I think the fossil fuel industry has taken on the challenge and they intend to be net zero before anyone else. And I think that's the message that's not getting out that does need to get out. Yeah, I, I think you raise an important point there because the, the federal government's goals and the, the Paris Climate Agreement's goals are to reduce emissions. The idea of sending really a death warrant to an industry to reduce emissions misses what's supposed to be the stated purpose, which is the actual emissions. The government of Canada is committing to net zero. The global community is calling for that same thing. And, and there seems to be missing from this and missing from the government's messaging on this, uh, the reality of looking at carbon capture as one notable example, something that's very industry-led that's working towards that same outcome. I know you've written about this, Michael, and I, I know you've discussed this with your colleagues in the hydro carbon sector. But what is it that the energy sector is bringing to the table here? And, and why is the government not looking for these solutions? I think one of the big fundamental um, mistakes that's been made in the public discourse is this idea that oil and gas has static electric uh, technology, that it's not changing. And it's, and it's led to this comparison of wind and solar and alternatives using 2050 technology to oil and gas using 1999 technology. And of course, that becomes a simple, simple uh, decision. But the fact of the matter is that while cost of wind, solar and wind has been falling rapidly, so has the cost of reaching net zero for oil, for oil and gas. And, and, I, and I published an article that, you, I, that I think you saw which that I actually think that once the industry puts its mind to it, and, and it has, that the industry can can win the race to net zero. And, and so we're, that means we don't have to be this choice between two extreme choices of business as usual, don't worry, the climate's not as bad as you think, or just transition, we have to leave it in the ground, um, and, but everybody needs to lose their jobs up to, you know, to save the climate. Those are the two extreme choices. There's a third option. And, and that third option, I think, is with new carbon technology, which is advancing rapidly. Some, some of the people on the, after me here are going to talk to that. Um, and and I, what I like to call the, the three R's, which we're all familiar with. We can reduce emissions. We can, we can reuse and recycle those emissions into products as a feedstock. And, and we can return it under the ground. And using those three R's that everybody understands, we have this third option of an energy transformation. Um, and then just to answer... Uh, uh, and that energy transformation, I think, then allows us to to have that mid that mid all of the above uh, solution between those two extremes. And I just want to quickly address what Danielle was talking about, uh, you know, in terms of the, the consultation and, and the uh, there was 20,000 submissions saying we've got concerns about the fact that you haven't looked at this third option. And, you know, I know there's some people talking, about, oh, well, that was just industry stuffing. Well, less than 20% of it came from CAPS Energy Citizens. That's more than 80% of those 20,000 submissions came from groups at, at large. So I, I think that the government is missing that the people are would rather see a, a, this third option. And, and then finally, just say, you know, $10 billion announcement by Dow Chemical in Alberta for zero emissions ethylene. I mean, there's some proof points of what Forbes and, B and C BBC in the UK talked about. This is a potentially trillion dollar emerging market. Yeah, let's talk to some of the players who are in that market. Uh, Apoorv, I know that uh, carbon gets a bad rap. A lot of people uh, are, are told it's the bad guy and we're not supposed to be doing anything that uh, unleashes it into the atmosphere. What, what's carbon upcycling? Uh, really, Andrew, I, I think, you know, when we use the word upcycling in our name, uh, there wasn't a huge amount of recognition as to how that was different from recycling. But really, the idea here is to give carbon a second life that is actually more meaningful and useful for society than in the first go around. So upcycling a plastic bottle would be to use that plastic in sustainable packaging or some other kind of form 
where it adds more value than it did in this first go around. I think with carbon, I you know agree with a lot of what's been said. I think the the challenge and the opportunity right now when it comes to carbon emissions is finding some ways of upcycling it, right? Like so, there are ways where CO two can actually be more than a pollutant. Like Buckminster Fuller talked about how pollution is basically a waste that hasn't found a purpose yet. And we think in some ways, in an aspirational way, we think that there is a segment of carbon emissions today that can be used to make better materials, whether it be in plastics or construction materials or even energy storage applications. But I think the bigger point here is, and I think some of the kind of nuances here that, that get lost in the, the public dialogue is that ultimately, if you think about CO2, it really is a sink for every single human activity. Uh, and not just our activity, it's for agricultural activity, like, you know, all the way down to emissions from cows and things like that. So, you know, there is no potential market which is going to take all of this CO2 and upcycle it. And I think there needs to be a recognition that some of these, you know, if we were going to close this loop entirely, some of these methods are only going to be a piece of the solution. And that recycling some of these emissions is actually going to be a major chunk of how we solve this. And I think within that scope, there is a realization that carbon recycling is as much you know, an important part of the solution is upcycling. I think the energy sector has a massive amount of expertise and knowledge that we can leverage towards that. I mean, no one knows how to build bigger and, and scale faster than the energy sector has done since the 60s. And I think, you know, to that end, I think, you know, some of the efforts like Kevin and his team at Avatar, I think are really important because, you know, instead of getting into this polarized debate, I think the, the real question here is, can we get to the same table and say, these are all the different parts of the solution where, you know, companies like us and initiatives from oil sand companies and others can all contribute in a positive way. Yeah, I'm glad you gave uh, Kevin a plug here because I, I was going to go to Kevin Crossword of Avatar next on this. Uh, Kevin, your firm has not only found uh, ways to connect different players and innovate new ideas, but you've also found there's a significant amount of capital behind driving some of these ideas. Again, not coming from carbon taxes, not coming from government, but, but coming from the industry itself. Yeah, well, thanks, uh, Porv, and I would have given him an equally good shout out as well. It's a pleasure working with him and being on a panel with these uh, great thinkers. Um, but yeah, so Avatar was really born around the idea that um, the we can't electrify everything. And there are many sectors that are nearly impossible to decarbonize. And the most rational solutions that exist to decarbonize the sectors that are most difficult to decarbonize, whether it's concrete, like a poor is talking about, or fertilizer or heavy industry or steel, these solutions already exist and they exist inside oil and gas, whether that is carbon capture or hydrogen or geothermal uh, or long duration storage. These are things the oil and gas sector has been already doing. So the world's decided it wants to decarbonize capital markets have decided they want to decarbonize. That's where the smart money is going. And so how do we unlock those solutions inside oil and gas for commercialization, scale and export? And we've been, you know, really delighted to um, have the work that we have. And yeah, so, you know, the, the, it's I'd no secret that capital markets are, you know, putting a, a lot of levers on, you know, invest the investment community to be investing in decarbonization initiatives. As a result, the cost of capital inside oil and gas has, has, has risen pretty dramatically. Whereas in the clean tech sector, the cost of capital, the you know, cost it's going to take to invest in a project to get it done is dramatically lower. But if we have all of these solutions inside oil and gas that can meaningfully make impacts on emissions change, 
how do we create what rational investment policies are going to be doing? And why didn't the funnel and create a lot of new ideas? So, um, you know, I would, uh, I would agree with this, you know, and the other piece of the puzzle is that this is, you know, a complex issue in the sense that, you know, I use the word energy transition, not because I mean, we're transitioning off of oil and gas, but because we have a skeptical public who doesn't trust us. And if they can see industry as a meaningful and powerful partner in the planet's climate ambitions, you're going to have a much different conversation than we're trying to, we're trying to, we're trying to fool you again is, is, is how I think energy transformation sometimes comes off. But I know there's, there's, there's good debates on both sides. But I was on a call yesterday with Europe and um, in Egypt, they just built a gigawatt uh, solar power factory and, you know, huge success. They thought they had, you know, built and unlocked all of these financial instruments. This just transition, according to the Paris Accord, isn't just the sort of worker retraining piece. It's also the bringing power to the developing world that doesn't have access to basic electricity. So they thought this solar panel factory was going to be a huge success. They can't replicate the financing for it now um, because 50% of the polysilicate in the world that builds solar panels comes from the Xinjiang province in China, where the Uyghurs have forced labor. So these levers of investments that should be driving, who's against a solar factory in Egypt? Probably nobody. Uh, <laughs> that these are complex issues that we have to be looking at as a, on a rational investment basis to be able to drive real investment and real jobs around the world. And that's, you know, I think the exciting opportunity that energy transition or transformation, whatever you want to call it, has. I want to go back to you on this for a moment, Michael, because what we've just heard from Kevin, what we've heard from Apoorv, these are, are great industry success stories. They're great Canadian success stories. But when you look at the government's guidance document, just to go back to the just transition for a moment, this guidance document doesn't reference at all carbon capture, carbon utilization, carbon storage. So we're back to why are these very real solutions not being given any weight in, in what is supposed to be a, a national and I would open an industry-inclusive uh, discussion. Yeah, well, and it's interesting that places, the International Energy Agency is maybe no surprise that they're talking about carbon capture, but but so is the World Economic Forum, which we know has been a big proponent of the Great Reset. And and, and even people like the United Nations and, and these organizations are talking about that we're not going to meet our targets. We have to include a carbon capture. And the Dunsky report just came out in Quebec, which I'm, which is, which is, is close to my heart. And, and they've talked about, we, we, we need these carbon capture solutions. So, so you're absolutely right. It's interesting that the just transition from our federal government just presumes we're going to have to pick between business as usual and a full leave it in the ground approach. And, 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 and so why aren't they like some of these other international agencies saying, well, maybe we need some third, uh, maybe we need a third option. And, and I would say that, uh, you know, Alberta and Western Canada and, and our industry is more and more all in on this idea of let's look at this third option. And you're right. Wasn't considered in the election, isn't being considered in this just transition for the consultation. You pointed out, just to, to lay some of the political groundwork here, Danielle, and in a column you wrote about this, a, a letter signed by a bunch of the usual suspects who, who are very much against the fossil fuel sector and don't want the industry involved. And, and they don't think that cap uh, carbon capture and carbon storage have a role in this at all. And I want to quote from this letter they sent to Canadian MPs because carbon capture is, quote, at odds with a just energy transition and the principles of environmental justice. 
Explain this. What does that mean? Well, if I could, I would. I think what is interesting is that letter came out the day before they launched the Just Transition consultation. And that doesn't happen by accident. There was a full court press, I think, to try to get the environmental community that has a fairly extreme view of the only energy sources we should be allowed to use to participate in this consultation to get the foregone conclusion. That's what I think was going on. But I, I think it's been derailed for a lot of the, the reasons that Michael has just suggested. There's, 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 a, uh, there's some pragmatism that is setting in here. I've talked to many members now, surprisingly, um, that from the environmental community, who in the past you might've thought would be hostile to the energy sector, the traditional hydrocarbon sector, who realized that the only way to meet the international targets is to use carbon capture utilization and storage, is to look at hydrogen. Most efficient way of creating hydrogen is through natural gas, looking at LNG exports to reduce the reliance on coal-fired electricity. So there, there is, a, I think, a growing pragmatism and a split in the environmental movement from those who really want to solve this problem versus those who just want to kill the fossil fuel industry. And I don't know if I know all the reasons why. Maybe it's because the energy sector has traditionally been uh, ex extremely well funded. Maybe it has been a bit, as Kevin put it, they kind of dragged their feet and, and not embraced the challenge uh, in a fulsome way. But something happened that was quite, um, I think, quite, quite dramatic is that when Justin Trudeau set a target of $170 for a price on carbon, I think that was a, a wake up moment for the industry. And they sat back and thought, hmm, why would I just sit here passively? and spend $170 a ton in tax, why don't I find a creative way to turn this into a feedstock? And once you've made that mental transformation that CO2 is not a pollutant, but it's a feedstock for useful products, or it's something you can monetize if you find a way to bury it underground, I think that that has unlocked a whole amount of entrepreneurial investment and creative thinking that the, the federal government and the environmental movement quite frankly hasn't caught up with yet. Well, let me ask you then, Apoor, what has been, in your experience, the driving force behind a lot of the capital and a lot of the, the corporate interest in this? Is it coming from a genuine desire to, to sort of reduce the impact? Or is it coming from, as Danielle's uh, comment kind of suggests, uh, oh my goodness, we, we don't want to be on the hook for this with how carbon taxes are going up? Yeah, I mean, there, there was a few different things said there that, that I had some, some visceral responses to, I guess. And I, I think what Danielle said there, is is exactly right i couldn't agree more about the power of the signal with that announcement about, about the tax and you know again i i tend to be realistic about these things and i i don't know how feasible it is that canada will have a 170 dollars a ton carbon tax and and you know while singapore and the uk and others are going to get away with five to ten bucks a ton um and maybe the uk wasn't a great example because they're actually trying to be progressive but there are definitely segments in europe which are you know further behind some of the more progressive kind of narrative that we see on the news. And I think what's important here is to realize that, um, you know, everyone's kind of looking for different pieces here in terms of validating what they're doing, right? Like the energy sector, I think, I again, I agree with Danielle. I think they've been slow on the uptake maybe at the start and maybe they're still paying kind of a disproportionate price for that. But I think they're absolutely a part of the short-term solution here. Um, and I think the government, frankly, needs to realize that major announcements and major kind of funding announcements in particular doesn't necessarily solve the problem. I mean, there's a lot of really hard work that has to be done by very competent people and by very competent groups of people that have to come together 
from very different backgrounds. And I think there is a notion right now on the, you know, and I don't want to get political at all because that's not my domain, but there is a progressive arm that thinks that all that we need is money. And I think that is absolutely the wrong way to look at this because there, there are many, many ways to spend money badly. And I think what is happening right now is there are ways where people are chasing announcements. I think even with private capital, uh, like I can speak about this from a carbon tech perspective. I think there are many companies that have talked about not generating revenue for four, five, six years, and they're getting very significant valuations that have actually got some people in the industry talking about how this might be the second clean tech bust in a couple of years. And, and frankly, regardless of whether you agree with how important you know, that priority is or not, I think everyone will agree that no one is going to be better off if this crashes in two years because there was a whole bunch of false dawns. And so, you know, I, I think the last thing I'll say on this from my perspective as an entrepreneur is, you know, look at what the hard facts are. And I think the government needs to stop sitting on the fence and actually pick winners. I know there's this big Canadian kind of, uh, I guess, reticence to pick winners, right? Like, and, and I think that needs to stop because there are only a handful of companies, frankly, that are going to make a meaningful impact in this. Like, imagine if instead of Ford, you had 10 other companies that the U.S. government and all the U.S. industry was trying to support at that time. I mean, you know, would all 10 have succeeded the way Ford did? I, I don't think it's possible, right? And, and so I'll just finish by saying that there are certain metrics about, you know, commercial uptake, you know, the, the amount of validation you've been able to achieve, the kind of traction you're getting with real customers. And these are things that, frankly, right now, whether it be private capital or government capital, I don't think that, you know, there's a kind of a skewed lens in which this is being looked at. Like they're saying, oh, this is a no brainer. This is going to work in three years. But the fact is that, you know, out of this basket of 20 or 30 things that you might be looking at, there's only two or three that are really going to work. And there are sometimes very obvious signs as to what those are. And I think I would just urge not just government and policymakers, but even the private capital folks to pay more attention to that. Because uh, at this point, you know, just a sense of urgency is making them kind of spray, you know, spaghetti on the wall. And that's that's not necessarily the best approach. No, I think that's a, a wise warning. And if I if I shift this for a moment to government funding, which I think is a useful proxy for government priorities in some cases, I, I would ask you, Kevin, I mean, where is the government interest in this? Because I, I know for years now, especially I'm in Ontario, we've heard about the importance of spending billions and billions of dollars on renewable energy and, uh, you know, solar power, wind power, all of these things. And, and there's been so much of an emphasis on that, but that doesn't really solve the underlying existence of the fossil fuel sector, which they, they do want to, as we know, phase out from. Why have they not been trying to assist the industry in, in making this sector better? I know the uh, Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers for example, came out and, and asked for the government to come up with basically a tax credit system similar to what the steel industry has been given. But at this point, there's not really been any uptake on that. Yeah, well, there's a there's a there's a lot there, I guess, uh, to unpack. But you know what I what I will say first and foremost is that I agree with a poor hundred percent. There is a lot of bad ways for the government to spend money, <laughs> and with the if government is going to be putting public money into energy transition, transformation, whatever have you, it singularly has to be serving something the market isn't currently delivering. Um, and that's not a way a lot of the funding is, is, is being doled out. And I think to a poorest point, I don't know necessarily it's the government should be picking winners. I think that the, the, the government needs to drop its mentality of anybody that's actually going to make money will give will 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 dole money out too. Mm -hmm. So Avatar has put 270 
oil and gas professionals through 67 from 67 oil and gas com companies in eight provinces generating 45 industry-driven energy transition solutions generated seven companies we've never received a cent of money from public funding and we're proud of that we're very proud of that because you know what the industry is saying they're saying we think this is important so let's go so we're going to put our money where our mouth is however there is a whole bunch of money that's going into a lot of not-for-profits that are speaking on these just transition issues um, and what results are they delivering and have they created these albatrosses um, that nobody knows what to do with and i think that there is a lot of that more, the money is coming to the table um, in ridiculous ways. Um, even the announcement today by TransCanada and Nikola Hydrogen, um, you know, there is there is huge um, capital that's kind of coming to the table here. So the role government needs to be thinking about is how can it focus on the areas of the market that are currently being underserved? And I have some ideas on that. I think it's seed stage risk capital. Um, there's all of these government grants at the $50,000, $100,000 levels for new technologies. And then there's all this private equity at $10 million investments. There's not a lot in the middle and that's the gap avatar is filling right now. But we, you know, what is the role the government could be, could be playing there to singularly drive investments and returns? You know, the, nobody knows most people agree that we're getting to, we have to get rid of carbon emissions. Now the question needs to be, what's the cheapest and most effective way to get there? And that's the role the conservatives need to be playing in this and where I think good conservative policy is. And that's going to be a market-driven approach. So that's, I think, that's, I think where the big opportunity is and the big excitement is in, in this area is it's, this isn't about retraining $150,000 a year petroleum engineers to go become baristas at Starbucks. This is about um, realizing that it's really easy to say, probably take a petroleum reservoir engineer and turn them into a carbon sequestration reservoir engineer because there's an opportunity there and there's money there. That's the conversation we should be having, not how do we win at this, not how do we make it as least painful as possible, which is the conversation they're trying to have right now. So let's take a step back here and, and accept for a moment the government's uh, goal of, of reducing carbon emissions by 40 to 45 percent. So let's take the politics out of this and where I think a lot of us could probably have a, a very vigorous debate about whether that's a reasonable or realistic goal. That's the government's goal. The best way to get there. Can it be done through all of these mechanisms that we've just been talking about? I don't know who wants to jump in on this, but but can these industry-led solutions meet that? And and if not, how much of that could they meet? And I let me jump in. I know uh, because I, I have I have one example that I can give you just to show you the power and the incredible capacity we have for for pore space. So I know of a single company at a single site that used to have deep gas wells. They've done, and they have compressor at the site. So they've uh, done their analysis. They believe that they can bury uh, uh, 80 megatons of CO2. Now, now, what is that? Well, we produce 270 megatons a year of CO2 in Alberta and 740 megatons in the entire country in a year. If that is one single site from one single company. And one third of Alberta's output. It's, it's extraordinary. So to me, the, the issue of carbon capture utilization and storage, storage is immensely powerful. So um, the, to the point I think though that Approve was making is that there will only be a, I, I don't know how they try to rationalize which projects are most likely to be successful from the utilization point of view. But I can say from the storage point of view, all government needs to do is get out of the way. We don't even have a policy yet for how you get permission to bury CO2 underground. We don't have a royal 
royalty structure. There should be a price that goes on the CO2 once it goes back into the ground as well. They haven't developed that. So I think what I'm observing is government is actually lagging behind industry on this. And we need to create some framework so that those companies that are able to go ahead without government support have a clear path to do it. Maybe you then have a broader conversation with the big five that wants uh, some significant tax breaks for their uh, carbon trunk line and sequestration project they're going to do in Cold Lake. And then maybe there's also additional conversations that you have about what the most um, optimistic options are for transforming those into products. But I would say you let the market work first, let those innovators keep on going, stay out of their way and, and try not to stop them with government policy. I'd like to just add to Danielle's point with a shameless plug for my own company, if I could, Andrew, which is that we've got a gas discovery in Quebec, which we- This is this is Questair, not Quest Modern Air, Miracle. Yeah, not Modern Miracle, exactly, but it's my it's, it's where I get paid to work. And 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 the, we've got a project there where where we and this is this is really where I came to realize that people were looking at our technology as being older than it is. But we can produce the natural gas there in the conventional way, and it, and it can be used in an industrial park or whatever, and and then be emitted into the air. But we realized well, we could put two pipelines in the ground for not much more money than one because you already got the ditch there. Bring a CO two line back. We've got carbon storage reservoirs right underneath where the gas is, so we could make a literal circle where we say, well, we'll send you the gas. And then just like so many other products, I'll take, you know, like uh, I'll sell you a can of Coke, I'll take the can back when you're done, right? But well, we'll sell you the natural gas, we'll take the CO2 back. And in addition to that, which is already zero emissions production and zero emissions consumption, 100% zero emissions for natural gas. I, I don't know that wind and solar can match that, to be honest. On top of that, what we really would like to do, and we talked, you know, how we met people like APRO visit, you know, we'd really like to also look at the opportunities to take some of that captured carbon and turn it into useful things um, because as Daniel pointed out, what opened my eyes was when somebody in Quebec told me, I'll pay you $140 a ton for a carbon credit. And I went, you'll what? That's as much money as I get for the natural gas. So then that opened my eyes to, well, then why don't we take that $140 and turn it into a cement additive with the, with the group, like with carbon upcycling? Why wouldn't we do that? We can make money doing that, right? So that's what really opened my eyes. So I was saying to my daughter, you know, this organic chemistry has been understood for a long time. We probably could have done this 20 years ago. She says, well, then why haven't we been? I said, well, there was never, it's just like the can of Coke. We never used to recycle those when I was a kid either until they put a deposit on it, right? She says, oh, so I guess that means carbon taxes are good, right, Dad? I said, well, that's send the conversation here then <laughs> and she's not coming to thanksgiving anymore right no i'm, I'm still gonna better to thanksgiving okay but she didn't she didn't need to be so right on that point <laughs> i i know you don't want to get into politics of poor so I, I hope you'll indulge the question nonetheless if it is this simple and it is something that the industry could be doing w without ease why why, why has there not been a push to the government or perhaps there have been if just, you know, just back off for a year and, and see what we can do. I mean, the numbers that Danielle gave, I'm assuming are, are not unfamiliar to you about how much the industry could do if it were just to, to take this over basically. Well, I think it boils down to just simple kind of incentives. Right. And I think, you know, Michael hit the, the nail on the head. I think ultimately there is a cost to changing anything. And I think that's one of the things where, you know, one of the, I guess the realizations that we've had and I've had as a CEO of a startup is, you know, when we go out and pitch for a government grant, the audience that we're dealing with is very different from when we talk to the CEO of a large construction company. And then when we go out to the quality control people and the guys that are actually running the trucks and managing the day-to-day -day at that company, again, very different audience, right? 
And then we talked to the EPC companies. Then we talked to the architects and the city procurement people. And you'll see, you know, like there are a couple of cities in Alberta that have declared climate emergencies. And you go out to their procurement people and say, hey, like this is a sustainable product. It's pretty much the same price as what you're paying, maybe 2% more or something like that. Are you interested? And they say, well, you know, we don't really know how to do this. And like, this is new stuff and we've got all the data, but we, we've never really tried anything. Like in my 25 years of, of work in this space, like they have no precedence to fall back to. And I think what ends up happening, I think, Andrew, is there is such a massive disconnect. Like we all work in our circles and no one's actually going out and meeting these people that aren't seeing the other kind of rough edges of how change happens. So I think the, my answer to why this is slower, I think is, you know, can we put a short-term kind of credible incentive that people can rely on and let the market do its work, right? Because when you do that signaling, I think to Danielle's point and Michael's and Kevin's, like I think the, gov like, the government will be shocked as, as are most people by the speed at which change can happen. But I think what is happening right now, and I'll say this for major corporates that we deal with, a lot of them just have to say, we'll be net zero by 2050, I'll be gone, you know, I'll be retired and sitting somewhere 20 years before that happens, but I might as well put this in because every one of my competitors has done it. And some of the guys that have gone further have said, we'll have a target of 20, 30, 40% reductions by 2030. Now that's still eight years away. I mean, any of us that have held a corporate job or any job of any kind know that a lot changes in your career in, career in eight years. So it's a person who's sitting there making that decision for their successor and they can wash their hands off and walk away from it. And I think that's where the urgency needs to be instilled by the policymakers and the governments to say, look, that's not good enough. Let's set a target for 2024, 2025. And I think, you know, the energy sector has already showed that, you know, when that happens, when there is an urgency to change behavior because that is the way to stay not just relevant but actually competitive and to kevin's words win instead of just being scared of losing everyone will move and we're seeing this in construction we're seeing this with oil and gas and i think that's you know if you can move large organizations and industries like that there is no reason why smaller industries won't follow and i, th I think that would be the missing piece instill that sense of urgency force if you force every company in canada which is 200 employees or more to have a 2025 goal and start meaningfully moving towards that, I can promise you the rate of change and the rate of frustration that you're maybe seeing here would be quite different in like a year's time. But right now you can just say 2030 and you're fine. Yeah, you're right. We we are on, on this side of the discussion. They expected to have a lot more in the way of a concrete path and a concrete roadmap than, than the people on, on the net zero side are when they can just sort of put these numbers out and not really have to uh, have a solution for how to get there. Uh, let me go to you, Kevin, as we wind down here. I, I know that there are, uh, as far as carbon removal is concerned, there are firms in Germany that are doing some great work, Singapore, the U.S. How is Canada in the competition here? I mean, how is Canada ranking and Canadian firms and, and Canadian companies uh, in the global landscape of, of players that are in this space? I'd say a close second, um, but if Avatar has anything to do with it, we'll be number one here pretty quick. So, um, you know, yes, this morning, actually, we just released uh, an announcement that Avatar has admitted 10 global companies uh, into an accelerator process to compete for Elon Musk's $100 million carbon removal XPRIZE. Um, so those are companies from, as you mentioned, Singapore, Germany, and four from the United States. Well, the reason they want to come to Calgary and to Canada is because we have a world-leading carbon technology ecosystem and research. We've partnered with the University of Calgary, um, the University of Calgary Born Carbon Engineering, which is the largest carbon removal company in the world currently that Bill Gates and Chevron and Oxy Petroleum have invested almost a billion dollars in. 
this is a race we can win. Um, we have one of the one of the teams that actually is Calgary based that and we admitted um, one of their founders is is one of the employee number two at Carbon Engineering. Canada, Calgary, and Canada become Silicon Valley of carbon. And next, the next race is going to be around the carbon molecule. And to finish on a poor's point, the reason we're slow to this is the hydrocarbon is a really effective energy storage molecule, and CO two is a really tricky molecule to manage. But we've got all the tools we got to be able to do this, and I think this is going to be the single biggest investment opportunity of our generation. Let's go to Michael here, because I, I know that the anti-hydrocarbon narrative on, on this is that carbon capture, carbon storage, these things are, are dangerous, they say, because they prolong the reliance on, on fossil fuels. The part of this that I'm missing is, well, if we have fossil fuels continuing to be used, and we also have at the same time these mechanisms that, that eliminate the negatives of that, why is that a problem? And, well, and I think the simple answer is because um, I, I think the problem is not that governor should pick, government should pick winners. I think the problem with just transition is that they actually are picking the winner. They've decided it's going to be wind and solar. And I, by the way, I think there's 100% a place for wind and solar in our energy diet, but they're picking it as the solution. That's And, and so, of course, anybody who says, well, I've now got an opportunity to, make, to have zero emissions oil and gas. People aren't thinking about, oh, well, I guess that solves the problem. What they're saying is, well, that's slowing down the that's slowing down the transition to our mandated solution. It's a it, and it's so it's a government picking winners problem. If, as Danielle said, the government would just get out of the way, I mean, I would say after of your, you know, 2025 is way too far away. I've been offered 140 bucks a ton. If the Quebec government would get out of my way, we'd be doing it tomorrow. Danielle, I'll give you the final word on this. Man, I thought Kevin had the mic drop moment, so I'm going to have to see if I can do anything better than that. But one of the things I would say is that um, even if we all move to zero emissions vehicle, we still need asphalt to drive to create roads to drive on. And so I think that we're seeing a transformation in how we use bitumen as well. I can foresee a future where we don't use bitumen for combustion at all that we find mechanisms, and I know one company that's already working on it to inject the CO2 back into the bitumen, split out the fines, and then use the bitumen, not only for asphalt, but also for construction materials. If you look at carbon fiber, carbon nanofiber, it has, it has uh, properties that might allow it to be a better building material than steel. And if you can imagine that, that we become the center, not only for hydrogen, not only for CO2, not only for all the wonderful projects that a purpose is going to make, but then also find a way to use bitumen to create these brand new building construction materials. The sky's the limit. I just think that there is immense opportunity on all hydrocarbons. And that's the point. If, if we're not shooting carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, it shouldn't matter that we're still continuing to use it as a, a feedstock. And I think that that's the future we're moving towards in Alberta. Very well said. Danielle Smith, president of the Alberta Enterprise Group. Michael Binion, founder of the Modern Miracle Network. Apoor Sinha, CEO of Carbon Cycling. And Kevin Crosser, CEO and co-founder of Avatar Innovations. It's been a very informative discussion for me, and I, I trust for the audience as well. So thank you to you all for coming on. It was a pleasure. Thank, thank you. Thanks. Thanks. Well, that was fantastic. And not me. I, they were they were the fantastic ones. I was just along for the ride. I, you know, I'm not a science person. I, I understand a lot of the themes. I certainly understand the politics. And I was nervous going into that. I'm like, oh, they're just going to blow me out of the water with the technical stuff. But I, I thought they did a fantastic job at, at really explaining this. And, and the whole point is, I, I almost 
believe the government, actually, I do believe that the government's approach to this is to use science as sort of a trump card. You know, it's we're talking about the climate, we're talking about science, you can't disagree with us, but we've just heard from people that know the science just as well. In fact, I'd say better than most federal lawmakers that are talking about all the things the industry is doing, and they have a very simple ask from the government, get out of our way. They're not looking for money. They're just looking for the space to do these things that will align with what the government says are its objectives. The question we're left with is whether those are the genuine objectives, and it's looking like they may not be, and that's perhaps why they aren't interested in the oil and gas sector solutions to it. But we'll have more to say on that as the weeks and months progress, I guarantee you. Thanks to you all for tuning in. We'll be back next week with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show on True North. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.